In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we find David, the shepherd boy who defeated Goliath in single combat, mighty warrior who took the city of Jerusalem, Israel's greatest king, fleeing the holy city. His flight, the result of the treachery of his son Absalom's plot to steal the hearts of the people and to stage a coup coming to fruition. As he left the holy city on his way north, came to a small town where a man named Shimei began heaping curses and stones upon him. At witnessing this, one of David's mighty men, Abishai, asks David, should I go and remove Shimei's head from his shoulders for you? For such treasonous speech. How dare he curse the king? Yet David elects to show mercy. Nothing evil befalls Shimei, at least not initially. When Solomon becomes king, his sin finds him out. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 2. But those details need not detain us here. What is of interest is what all the people in Israel would have known. To curse a king is to reject that king's rule. To curse the king is an act of treason. To curse the king is to sentence oneself to death. Now I ask you, if this is true in the case of an earthly king, how much more so is it true of God? How much more worthy is His name of being revered than that of the name even of King David? God's name is to be revered. It is to be honored. And that is the main point of our text this morning as we come to the back half of Leviticus chapter 24. That God's name is to be revered. His name is to be revered and His justice is to be done. Our exhortation will follow uh, right along with that main idea. We're to honor God's name and to do justice. When I say do justice, I mean to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. You have your outline there before you. Uh, We have a case of blasphemy and then some principles of justice that we distill out of that case and that God gives to us in this particular pericope. Let's pray and we'll begin working through the text together this morning. Father, we need to hear from you. So we ask that you would open our ears so that we might hear. What we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 10 of Leviticus chapter 24. Now the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father was among the Israelites. A fight broke out in the camp between the Israelite woman's son 
and an Israelite man. Her son cursed and blasphemed the name, and they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilomith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody until the Lord's decision could be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Bring the one who is cursed to the outside of the camp, and have all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then have the whole community stone him. And then drop down to verse 23. After Moses spoke to the Israelites, they brought the one who had cursed to the outside of the camp and stoned him. So the Israelites did as the Lord had commanded Moses. This really is an interesting case that, that occurs in the, among the people. You have an Israelite who has an Israelite mother, a man who has an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father gets into a little bit of fisticuffs with a full Israelite. And so you have a, a resident alien fighting with a native citizen. And the people, they don't know what justice looks like in this particular situation. Because as they are fighting, the man who is a resident alien curses the name of the Lord their God. Now likely they would be able to extrapolate that this is a violation of the third commandment, right? Exodus 27, do not misuse the name of the Lord. Don't take the Lord's name in vain because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. They, they've got that. They would be able to do the math. If you curse your parents, you honor your mother and father. If you curse your parents, uh, the penalty is death and God is greater than our parents. And so if we curse God, if somebody curses God, the penalty ought to be death. They, they can do that math. But what's interesting here and why they aren't sure sure what to do here is that this man is a resident alien. He's not, he's not a full citizen. And so perhaps, their thinking goes, the judgment for him looks different in this situation. I mean, that's the conflict that undergirds this particular case. And so they detain him. They, they kind of put him in custody. I don't know what that looked like. But they're holding him somewhere until God can make his will known. And so they, they seek out God's will through Moses. And eventually, uh, Moses comes back and, and God speaks through him and he says, what we need to do is you need to take him outside of the camp and stone him for this violation. The same justice that applies to an Israelite will apply to the resident alien among us. It really is interesting. So much to, to learn from what the people do here. I mean, specifically, they don't understand right away what is right in this particular situation. And so they serve as a model for us. They, they go to the Lord and say, well, God, what have you said about this? What, what is your will in this particular situation? This is how we ought to handle matters of right and wrong when it's not immediately clear to us. We should come to God's word and hear what he has said to us there. We want to say, God, what, what does your justice look like in this situation so that we might do what is right in your eyes? 
I think far too often as Christians, we are discipled about how we should live and about what right and wrong is by influences other than the Bible. I mean, how many of us spend more time watching CNN or Fox News than we do examining the Scriptures? When there's a question about what is right or wrong, are you more likely to listen to a political figure or your pastor? What is most shaping you and your view of the world? The world itself or the Word of God? True justice is doing what is right in God's eyes. It is judgment in accord with what is right. And so true justice always has two things in view. First, the law, because the law makes a distinction between what is right and what is wrong. And secondly, God, because God ultimately determines right and wrong. The Bible says that we do justice by doing what is right. That is, what is right in God's eyes. And what is right in this particular situation is for the Israelites to take this man who is living among them and to take him outside of the camp and to stone him to death for violating the law of God. So, step one of understanding how to do justice is to honor God and to listen to what God has said. To hear what his verdict is. To hear what he says we ought to do. And step two follows from that is to actually do that justice. To do what God has said. Right, James uh, chapter 1. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Or or James 4.17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so you get James's point. You can go to God and you can know the right thing to do and have the right knowledge, but if you don't do it, you have sinned. Imagine if the Israelites here would have gone before the Lord their God. God, what do we do in this situation? And God says, take the man outside of the camp and stone him for this offense. Put him to death. They hear this from Moses and they just go, well, it's a little harsh. We're we're just going to fine him and send him on his way. Or or worse yet, they just did nothing at all. Think a lot of us are willing to say, yes, we want to do 
what God says. We want to do what is right until it gets costly or it rubs up against our predispositions. You can't do that, God. That, that'll, that'll offend someone. I can't give up this part of my life, God. It's just, it's just too hard. Don't, don't you understand the context and the culture that I live in? And yet at this time, as at all times, God calls us to do what his word says. This is precisely what the Israelites do here. This is one of the times they get it right. They take the man outside of the camp. They stone him for cursing the name of the Lord their God. For cursing the name of their king. And yet to us, this might seem a little intense. I mean, well, what's, what's the big deal about cursing someone's name? Death? Really? Yes, really. Names are, are kind of a big deal. We understand that they, they represent the person. A way of identifying people and describing them. The importance of name is, is quickly revealed if you just do a, a Google search on baby names. I mean, millions of resources. Or you go to a, a bookstore and you look for a baby name book. Yeah, you'd think that wouldn't be very long, but no, hundreds of pages. Just names. Because people understand that it's important. How you name your child is going to impact them the rest of their life. Sometimes uh, names are, are very literal in their description of someone, like the name Cameron, which means crooked of nose. Right? So maybe baby comes out and you go, this is a Cameron, crooked of nose. Or maybe the name Phoebe, maybe it's more figurative, right? Phoebe, which means bright or radiant, right? just comes out beaming ear to ear. A good name. Sometimes our given names don't live up to who we actually are. And so friends will kindly give us nicknames that both describe us in terms of our character and our looks. Such was the case of Major General Hastings Ismay, who was Winston Churchill's military chief of staff. He was known lovingly and universally as Pug for his likeness to that breed of dog. One of his contemporaries, John Colville, described him thus, the eyes, the wrinkling nose, the mouth and the shape of his face produced a canine effect, which was entirely delightful. When he smiled, his face was alight, and he gave the impression that he was wagging an easily imaginable tail. I don't know if I would want to be known as Pug. It was a term of affection. It's what everyone called him. This name, Pug, captured the whole of the man. You see, likewise, God's name captures the whole of who he is. You cannot separate who God is from his name. I think we often think of names as something that we are given rather than who we are. This was not the way for the Hebrews. 
for the Hebrews, the name was inseparable from the person and expressed a person's inward identity. And so when we praise God, we are praising his name, right? To praise the name of God is to praise God. To give glory to the name of God is to give God glory. We are saved for his name's sake. We give thanks to his name. We trust in his name. There's no other name under heaven or earth by which we might be saved than the name of Jesus. God's name is who God is. And so the penalty for using his name in a way that does not accord with his greatness is sin. It's a sin of the highest order, worthy of death. Now, a quick note here. Uh, No nation exists today, as Israel did then, as a theocracy. The church today doesn't exist in the same way Israel did then. And so we don't put anyone to death for cursing the name of the Lord. And same too here, like the Israelites are not told to go outside of the land of Israel and find anybody who would curse the name of God and put them to death. They understand there are geographical boundaries to this and that the people are to honor God in their land. So there's, it's very clear that today we are not to pursue this kind of judicial action, right? Romans 13 is very clear that the power of the sword belongs to the state. Nevertheless, we are still called to honor the name of God. I mean, it is extremely important here, and it's extremely important now. I mean, one of the ways we see how important it is here, if you look at verse 14, it says, Bring the one who has cursed to the outside of the camp, and have all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and then have the whole community stoned him. This is weird, right? Like, why are they laying their hands on the head? We, we've seen this elsewhere in Leviticus, right? Typically, when somebody leans on the head of an animal or on the head of a sacrifice, what they're doing is they're transferring their sin to that sacrifice. And so some commentators, the majority of them, suggest that the reason this hand-leaning rite is taking place here is because by hearing the name of God misused, one is polluted by that sin. And so the hand-leaning rite is to actually transfer that pollution, that that filth of sin back to the person who uttered the curse. Another suggestion is that they're simply leaning on him as witnesses, identifying him as the one who had cursed the name of the Lord. I think perhaps both ideas are at play. They both underscore just how holy God's name is. God gave the third commandment for a reason. And he has never abrogated it. He expects his holy name to be honored as holy. It's the first thing that Jesus asks us to pray in Matthew 6, 9. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. The idea is that we are to honor God's name as holy. So what does that that look like exactly? Well, certainly, 
It means that we don't flippantly use God's name as a, a curse or an expletive. And it also means that we don't utilize God's name to further our own agenda. Right? Maybe uh, you've heard somebody say, well, God told me to try to get their way, right? God told me that you need to give me $5 today. Or maybe even uh, false teachers, right? Lots of uh, prosperity uh, preachers will do this. They will say, God told me directly this morning that whatever you give to the offering, well, there's a tenfold blessing coming your way. So whatever you give, ten times that is coming back to you. God told me, just sow that faith seed and watch it grow up into fruition. 1 Peter tells us these teachers' condemnation is from long ago as they pursue their own ends at the expense of the holy name of God. So we, we shouldn't use His name to further our own agenda. We shouldn't curse His name or use it flippantly. Those are things we ought not to do. But I think more positively, we honor God's name by representing Him rightly. You see, the commandment is not only about speaking God's name, but about bearing it. Taking God's name is done not only by those who use it in speech, but also by those who identify as God's people. When you put your faith in Jesus, you say, I am a Christian, and you, you come to uh, other Christians, and they say, yeah, you're a Christian, and, and they baptize you. And you are baptized out of the world and into the church and onto mission. What is being said there is that you are a representative of God. You are an ambassador of King Jesus. His reputation, His name is now bound up with how you act and how you live. So when we live out of step with His holy justice, we misuse His name. You probably get the idea of how this works a little bit. Uh, if you ever had a sibling, like I do, I have a sister, and she was just a few years behind me in school, and so what would happen was her reputation would get attached to me before she had ever really set foot in the classroom. Like sometimes it was really good. Teachers would be like, oh, you are Justin Braun's sister. What a great student. I'm so happy you're in my class. Here, you can sit right up front. And she's a favorite immediately. Other times, it was more like, oh, you are Justin Braun's sister. This semester is going to be just great. Like, her reputation was bound up with my reputation because we shared the same name. And see, when you become a Christian, you are taking on the name of King Jesus. And his reputation, what other people think about Jesus, well, that's impacted by how you live and speak. And so we keep the third commandment by living according to our family name. According to the name that we have been given by faith in Christ Jesus. 
God's name deserves to be honored. And all justice, all true justice, begins with honoring God. We also have some principles of justice outlined for us here. Starting, I want to start in verse 22. It says, You are to have the same law for the resident alien and the native, because I am the Lord your God. And we've seen this before in Leviticus 19. Let me read you verses 33 and 34. When an alien resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as native-born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you can see what God is saying. He's saying, you may not oppress anyone who is living among you. You may not mistreat somebody who differs from you ethnically or in social status or in citizenship. The law that applies to the native-born Israelite must also apply to the resident alien. Everybody deserves equality under the law. There can be no partiality. The holy God of the Bible has no patience for racism or tribalism. These things must be repudiated. Must seek justice by doing all we can to ensure that people are treated equally under the law. One of the reasons people are to be treated equally under the law, the main reason, is because the Lord is our God. And because all people are made in His image. All people, everywhere, every man, woman, and child you have ever met has been made in the image of God and is worthy of dignity and honor and respect. Therefore, we ought to treat every person we ever meet with the dignity, honor, and respect that they are worthy of. Because the Lord is our God. We honor God by honoring His name, by doing what we can to ensure that people are treated equally under the law. Also, by making sure the punishment fits the crime. We see this in verses 17 through 21. If a man kills anyone, he must be put to death. Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, life for life. If any man inflicts a permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it. Whoever kills a person is to be put to death.
And so you see the first law mentioned here in verse 17, it's kind of repeated again in verse 21, is that the penalty for taking life is, is your life. Now, of course, the Bible makes, I can't, can't remember the thing of the word, it, it makes provision, there it is, it makes provision for those who would commit manslaughter by allowing them to flee to cities of refuge. What's in view here is somebody who deliberately takes the life of someone else. It says, if you take the life of someone else, then your own life is forfeit. And so we see in an ironic way that capital punishment actually emphasizes the great value of human life. The only thing that can pay for life is life. So that if you take the life of someone else, Functionally, you are sentencing yourself to death. Human life is infinitely valuable. It's valuable because we are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. Therefore, we should honor life. Let's not take it. Whether through abortion or through euthanasia, or through murder. We must honor it by pursuing the good of our neighbors and one another. By doing justice. That is, doing what is right, living in harmony with what God has said we ought to do. You see here that the punishment fits the crime we also see that the penalty for taking life is, is your life, but we also what, what it's, it's not something else here too. The penalty for damaging someone's property is not death, cannot be death under the Israelite legal system. This was not the case across the ancient Middle East, ancient Near East. You could actually be sentenced to death in a lot of places for damaging someone's property. And these laws show us, just very brightly, that people are more important and more valuable than property. People are to be honored. They're to be punished according to their crime. Look at, at verses 18. We have whoever kills an animal must make restitution for it, life for life, make a payment, restore it. 19, if a man inflicts permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done is to be done to him. And on down. That, that strikes us. I think we, we misunderstand this a lot of the time. We think, okay, that means if somebody knocks my tooth out and they're found guilty in the court of law in ancient Israel, well, then uh, how we make restitution is we stand across from one another, they, they stick their chin out, and I, I get to you know, punch their tooth out. But that's not, that's not how these laws function. These laws are legal guiding principles and the goal of them is to make right what was made wrong. So for example, Exodus chapter 21, starting in verse 23. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. There's the same law that we've had. 
Now let's look at how it's applied in verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his tooth. And so the solution to this injustice when a a slave is, is blinded by his master is not for the master to be blinded, but for the slave to be freed. The slave gains his freedom, and the master loses his worker. And so we see that justice is done. It's a legal guiding principle to make sure that the punishment fits the crime. It's also got a wonderful restrictive sense to it, right? That's, that's prescriptive. You need to make sure that the punishment is suitable to the crime. It's commiserate to the crime. But also it restricts what would be ever escalating vengeance. So imagine uh, if I am in a, a feud with someone and, and they cut off my hand. And in response, um, one of you all uh, taking up my honor comes back and, and so you lop off their head. And then their family uh, feels inclined to defend their honor, and so they come and they're going to kill uh, my family and your family, just real Hatfields and McCoys type stuff. It doesn't end, it just keeps escalating. What the law is meant to do is to, to restrict that so that matters can be faithfully adjudicated in the court of law. Restricts vengeance. We get a good example of what unrestricted vengeance looks like as sin is uh, just continuing to grow in the world in Genesis 4. We come across this character, Lamech, who says this to his wives. Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech, it will be 77 times. And so you see what he's doing. He's boasting. You know, somebody gave me a scratch and so I killed him. Vengeance. This is precisely what the law is meant to restrict. Even still with the prescription that the punishment should fit the crime, this law became misunderstood and misapplied. Jesus seeks to correct this misunderstanding in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Starting verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Slap here is not an indication of physical violence, but of insult. Jesus isn't prohibiting self-defense or fleeing from evil. Verse 40, As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks of you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I think this is perhaps one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. Jesus is not calling for his people to ignore injustice or to submit to evil or to entertain personal abuse in our lives. 
Rather, he is teaching those who have misunderstood the law not to seek personal vengeance or exchange insult for insult. He's not saying we're throwing out this law that the punishment must fit the crime. What he is saying is that the punishment for the crime is not your personal responsibility to met out. So so you see what had happened with this law is it had been picked up from its judicial context and transported over into the realm of the personal. Right? It's the difference between what is right for the courtroom and what might be right for your living room. And so what people would do is they would say, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and they would use the guiding principles of the law as an excuse to seek personal vengeance. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Your job is not to seek personal vengeance. These judicial principles are not your personal policies. Your responsibility, if you're going to follow me, is to lay down your life and to love your neighbor. See, in personal relationships, it's not the law of equal justice that applies, but the law of love and forgiveness. Personal self-sacrifice displaces personal retaliation because this is the way of our Savior. This is the way of the cross. Paul tells us this in Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Never avenge yourselves. Do you have any bitterness that you are nursing? Anyone that you have thought of avenging yourself against? Oh, friend, this is not the way of the Savior. Leave justice to God. Yes, of course, there are times when we need to pursue justice in the courts according to the law of our land. But our posture needs to be to allow the Lord to avenge any wrongs that have been done to us. We need to seek to make sure that we never avenge ourselves. Rather, practice love and forgiveness. That we would love our neighbors and leave retribution to God. Friends, this is what Christ has done for us. 
Jesus, the good shepherd. The mightiest of warriors who conquered sin and death. Jesus, the one who will bring the holy city and spread it out on earth. Jesus, the true and greater king. Great David's greater son. When he was cursed, he did not curse in return. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But instead, he entrusted himself to God. All of us have rejected the kingship of Jesus Christ. Just as those who unjustly sentenced him to death. Jesus could have called legions of angels to his side, could have vanquished his enemies with the blink of an eye, and yet he did not. Yet he chose to entrust himself to the Lord and not avenge himself. He loved. He loved his own to the point of death. Even death upon a cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so as he walked to the hill of Calvary, as he hung on the cross, as he was spat upon, as he was mocked, as he was cursed, he died. He died for the sins of you and me. He died for the sins of all who have dishonored God's name. For all who have rejected God's rule. Jesus on the cross took our names upon himself. Suffered the punishment that was due to your name and my name. The full wrath of God. So that when we repent of our sin and put our faith in him, we might take his name. And all the blessings and favor that are due to him. This is an incredible truth. Non-Christian, you can have the name of Christ. You turn from your sin. Put your faith in Him. Church, we must not forget that we do indeed bear the name of Christ. Let us be a people who live according to that name. A people who love our neighbors. Who seek to do justice. To do what is right according to God's eyes. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We thank you for your word, for your mercy. Our sins are many, and yet your mercy is more. When we come to you with nothing and trust in Christ, we have unlimited favor. The fountain of your grace never runs dry. 
And we are always welcome to drink. We thank you that our sin could never catch up to your love and your mercy. We thank you that by faith in Christ we can know you as Father rather than as Judge. We thank you that you are coming one day to end evil and to make all things well. We thank you for Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.